Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Judges, to Judges chapter 13. We're going to notice some verses in and around Judges chapter 13 in just a few moments. I think you'll be helped tremendously by reading along with me in those passages and the others that we'll be looking at tonight as we study together in the Word of God. It's great to see everybody tonight as we bring to a close this rainy first day of the week. hope that you've had a pleasant afternoon in spite of the rain and that you're ready right now to spend these next few minutes on things that are important, things that are of eternal implications, things that God has left for us in the pages of His Word. I need to ask you tonight to listen very, very closely and very, very carefully. I hope that's the case all of the time when I or anyone else gets up to present the Word of God. But this evening we're going to be talking about a matter that I know that I want to be very careful in how I speak. I want to be very precise in the language that I use. And so I need to ask you to give that same level of attention as hearers. Well, his story has been all over the news. He was a very talented man who rose through the ranks and became quite powerful. He was a nationally known man. In fact, he was a decision maker. And the decisions that he made enormously affected the lives of people around him on a daily basis. But eventually, because of his fame and his wealth and his power, he began to believe that he was invincible, that he was untouchable. And so he began to behave and to act inappropriately toward women. After all, who was going to know? Who would ever find out? In fact, even if anybody did know, who was ever going to be brave enough to say anything? Because with just a word, he could destroy your career, your reputation, and in fact, your life. But then one day, someone did know. And someone did tell. And the consequences and the repercussions of his actions, they were devastating. Now, who do you think we're talking about tonight? The news has certainly been filled during the last four and a half months with lots and lots of names that could fit that very description. Maybe you're thinking right now that we're talking about someone from the field of entertainment, maybe like Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey or Bill Cosby or any other number of actors and bigwigs out in Hollywood. Or maybe we're talking about some of the big shots in the news media, men like Matt Lauer or Bill O'Reilly or even Charlie Rose. Maybe you're thinking that we're talking about a politician this evening like Senator Al Franken or maybe Judge Roy Moore that ran for the Senate seat. Or maybe you're even thinking maybe we're talking about someone from the world of sports. Lots of popular athletes out there. Donovan McNabb and even that fellow that's been in the news a lot recently, Larry Nasser, the U.S. gymnastics uh, trainer and, and, and medical doctor. You know, based on the flood of allegations that have been made against these men and many others like them in recent months... You might be thinking that we could be talking about any of these guys this evening. But actually this evening, I'm not talking about any of these fellows. Instead, I'm talking about a man who predates all of these men by about 3,000 years. This evening, the man that I'm talking about was a man by the name of Samson. Samson's story is a very familiar story to us all. And yet it is one that I believe fits the description of the man that we just described quite perfectly a few moments ago. Now, we'll circle back to all of those other guys in just a few minutes, but in many ways I must tell you, 
I really can't relate to all of those guys. I don't know much of anything about the entertainment industry or about the realm of politics or the news media or professional sports. But I do know a little bit about the Bible. And the Holy Spirit has put the story of Samson in the Bible because God obviously wanted us to learn something from this guy. And He even put very ugly details in the text. Details that I think you and I, if we were writing the Bible, we probably would not include those details. But God's Spirit put them in there as if to say, Hey, you need to pay attention here. You need to be learning something from this man's story. Now, we don't have the time this evening to read all four chapters that cover Samson's story. But I will give you just a brief biographical sketch just to get you up to speed. Samson's life is one that begins with so much dignity, so much promise, and so much purpose. He is born in the beginning into a godly family. And he is given a very privileged upbringing. In Judges, the 13th chapter, we are introduced there to his parents, first of all. And we are told in chapter 13 and in verse 2 that they were not able to bear children. They had prayed for a child. They wanted a child. And so when that prayer was heard by God and answered by God, Samson was a very wanted child. That can't be said of every child. Not every child is wanted in love by their parents, but Samson was. He was wanted. He was loved. He was cherished as a child. And when I say to you that Samson had a godly family, I don't use the term godly in a flippant sort of way. No, in verse 8 of chapter 13, we are told that these people, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, they prayed that God would teach them how it is to raise that child in the way that he ought to go. Boy, parents, that's a great prayer that all of us need to be praying. Lord, help me to know how I ought to raise my child. And so they do. They raise him. They raise him with the Nazarite vow, verse 7 tells us. And that Nazarite vow meant that Samson would not cut his hair. He would not drink alcohol. He would not even touch anything that would defile him. These are parents who were instilling in their son right at the very beginning the right kinds of values so that he would not even get close to violating the will of God. And then as if those advantages weren't enough, the Bible then shows us that Samson had the very special blessing of God upon him. In verse 24 of chapter 13, the text says that the young man Samson, he grew... And the Lord blessed him. From the very beginning of his life, Scripture goes out of its way to tell us that Samson was special. I realize that all children are special, but Samson is special in a different sense. In fact, Samson, did you know this? Samson is one of only four children whose birth is announced by an angel in all of Scripture. Do you know who the other three are? Isaac. John the Baptist, Jesus, and then Samson. Hey, that's that's pretty good company to be in, wouldn't you say? Samson is an extremely blessed man. In fact, for two decades, for 20 years, the Bible tells us, Samson is privileged to hold and to occupy the highest position in all of Israel. He serves as a judge. He is the leader of God's people, so he wielded a considerable amount of influence and power. 
And not only does Samson possess power in that figurative kind of sense, but he also possesses a literal kind of power. In verse 25 of chapter 13, the text tells us that at that time, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson at a young age. And when we come to chapter 14, we start to see some of what that's all about. Because we're told in chapter 14 that in verse 6, Samson has been given a considerable physical strength unlike anyone else on earth. In verse 6 of chapter 14, it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he tears a lion into pieces with his bare hands. This guy is the poster boy for what it means to be strong and muscular and macho. In fact, it is that strength that probably is the most well-known attribute about Samson. We're teaching our kids about Samson, and that's usually kind of where we start, with how strong he was. And so when you add all of those pieces together, it is clear from Scripture that Samson Samson had extraordinary privilege and power all throughout his life. And yet, when we come to the end of his life, he is blind. And he is bound by Philistines. And his head is shaved. And he is doing the work of an animal. What on earth happened to Samson? How in the world could the mighty have fallen so far? Well, the answer to that is that Samson had a fatal weakness. Now, I want to say here, there are really several factors that I think contributed to Samson's downfall. And we could enumerate a lot of those. Uh, For one, as Samson got older, he seemed to know a whole lot better than his mom or dad did. Stop listening to their instruction. Stop listening to their advice. Not only that, but Samson had a real bad habit of hanging around the wrong kinds of crowd. Always running around with Philistine people. He didn't need to be hanging around with those kind of folks. Furthermore, Samson had an anger problem that I just don't think he ever really got into check and worked on in his life. And then as you read all throughout Judges chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, you see a progression of a man drifting further and further and further away in his relationship to God. So much so that by the time we get to the end of the story in chapter 16 and in verse 20, the text says that Samson didn't even realize that the Lord had left him. Boy, how far do you have to be away from God to not even realize that God's Spirit has left you altogether? But even despite all of those problems, and those are all big problems in and of themselves, I think the singular flaw that was so fatal in Samson's life was the way that he dealt with, the way that he interacted with, the way that he thought about women. Just trace this out with me in some of these passages. Samson is the judge of Israel. He is the leader of this great theocracy. But in Judges chapter 16 and in verse 1, the text tells us that he actually goes and buys the body and the time of a prostitute. What in the world is the leader of God's people doing with a prostitute? Not only is he committing fornication here, but Samson is actually a married man. He's committing adultery. Then you drop on down in chapter 16 and in verse 4. He falls in love with this woman by the name of Delilah. And she is a Philistine, the text tells us. This would be very much akin to a Christian today deciding that they're going to get married to an avowed militant atheist. 
That's not the kind of person that's going to help you in your faith and in your walk with God. The consequences of that relationship, of course, are devastating. You know the story. How Samson ends up revealing the secret of his strength to this woman. And why? Because he's just so smitten with her. He has such feelings, such urges. Probably it would be best to say he has such lust for her. But there's one statement I really want to direct your attention to this evening that I think I think is so telling of where Samson was in how he treated women. It's back in chapter 14. Would you look in chapter 14 again? In chapter 14, we're told there at the beginning of the chapter that Samson goes down to yet another Philistine village by the name of Timnah. And while he's there at Timnah, he sees a woman and he's just taken with her. The text doesn't say anything about how he got talking to this woman and she had a great sense of humor or she was really intelligent and he grew to to like her and have feelings for her. No, he just saw this woman and he wanted her. And so he says to his parents in verse 2 of chapter 14, he says, I want her for my wife. And so his parents plead with him, no son, slow down here. You need to think this through. This is not a very wise decision. This is an impulse purchase if ever there was one. But Samson is determined to have this woman. This woman who pleases his eyes, who pleases his lust. And so in verse 3, he says even more forcefully than the first time, he says, get her for me, for she pleases me well. Just sit for a moment and think about that statement. Think about the thought process that goes into actually uttering those words. Get her for me. She looks good to me, one translation says. What an attitude. What an approach. And I am afraid to say that it is an attitude that we have seen reported in our news for the last four and a half months. We've seen it over and over again. Here I am. I am a person in a position of power and privilege. I can do whatever I want. I can have whatever I want. There's no thought here on Samson's part or in many of the cases we're hearing about today. There's no thought that this is someone's daughter. There's no thought that this is someone's sister. There's no thought that perhaps this is another man's wife. No, just get her for me. She pleases me. And I think what this shows us is that bad behavior by men toward women, it is not a new or recent phenomenon. This has been going on For centuries. Maybe the only difference between then and now is that now this wickedness and this corruption, it's being brought out into the light. And for that, I think we ought to be thankful. I know we can sit and we can debate all day long about the validity of every accusation and every allegation that's been made. But I want to say to you, there is no denying that the spirit of Samson here, it has been plaguing our culture for far too long. Now, I really can't do anything about the attitudes and about the conduct of men who hold really high positions in the entertainment industry or in the media or in the political realm or in the sports world because those aren't my worlds. And I really don't have any kind of influence in those worlds. But you know what I can do? I can do something about my world. 
And that has to begin with myself. And then that needs to extend to the sphere of influence that I have within this church, within my family, and within the community in which I live. And so with that thought in mind, let me make to you just two very straightforward points, two undeniable truths in light of what we've just read here in Judges and in light of the recent rash of stories about sexual misconduct that's been exposed in our world. Number one, let me just say, and I feel it's almost shameful that I even have to just say this, but I'm going to, that any type of inappropriate language or action or touching It's not just inappropriate. It's not just out of place. It's sinful. And you know what? As God's people, we need to be ready to call that for what it is. It is sin. And I want to say as well that it's not just the language and the action and the touching that is sinful. Maybe more insidious than that, it is the thought that goes behind it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34 that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Every word, every action that an individual takes, where does it begin? It begins in the heart and the Bible heart is right here. It begins in the mind. And it is in the mind where it gains approval and it is then acted and carried out. I want to say tonight that I think it is the intention of the heart that makes Samson's words and actions so vile and repulsive to me. And it is the intention of the heart that makes these stories that we are seeing and hearing about in the news so vile and so wicked and so repulsive. But then secondly, number two, not only is such language and action and touching inappropriate and sinful, but they are the very antithesis. They are the very opposite of the kind of respect that the Bible teaches women are due. You know, millions of women over the past four and a half months have been posting on social media with the hashtag MeToo. And they're doing that to recount their particular experiences in being sexually harassed or in having unwanted sexual attention being put upon them. And I will tell you, I've actually sat and read a lot of those. And I've read a lot of those from sisters in Christ who I do not doubt their integrity. And I must tell you, as a man, it breaks my heart. And men, it ought to break every single one of our hearts. Any God-fearing man who has a wife or who has a daughter or who has a sister or who has a mother, fellas, I think that covers all of us, doesn't it? To know that that kind of behavior, that it is so pervasive in our culture, that that kind of disrespect, that that is what lies at the core of all of that ugliness. Which is why tonight, for these last few minutes we have remaining, I want to just walk through what the Bible has to say about the kind of attitude and the kind of respect that women are due. Because I think one of the most unique features about the Bible is the way that it honors women. That makes the Bible very, very different from other sacred and holy books like, for example, the Quran. Because the Bible, unlike the Quran and other religious books, the Bible goes out of its way to acknowledge the role 
and the influence of women in the home, in the church, and in society in general. For example, just start on the very first page. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible tells us that women, just like men, they bear the image, they bear the stamp of God Almighty. In the image of God, He created them both male and female. But it doesn't stop on the first page. The Bible continues on. For example, when Moses is giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 to the children of Israel, he said something to those people in that day and time that really would have been absolutely revolutionary. Because in the fifth of those commandments, he taught children that they were to honor their father and their mother. That was absolutely unheard of at that time. In pagan cultures of that time, women were considered nothing more than property. And so when Moses comes along and he says, Listen kids, you need to honor and respect and obey your dad. And guess what? You need to honor and respect and obey your mom too. That was a new way of thinking for some folks. Now it is certainly true that men and women have different roles both in the family and in the church. I am a husband and I am a father. But I can never be a wife or a mother. Me and Tiffany, we have different roles. But I want to say, even as I say that, never does the Bible marginalize women. Never does the Bible relegate women to kind of second class citizenship within the kingdom. No, in fact, in the kingdom of God, Galatians 3.28 tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one. In Christ Jesus. Yes, we may have different roles in the kingdom. But that has nothing to do with ability. That has to do with eligibility. God decided. God already put into writing what our roles were going to be in the kingdom. And I want to say again that at the foot of the cross, we all stand together as equals, men and women. In fact, Scripture even sets women apart as being deserving of special honor. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 7, Peter says there in 1 Peter 3 and in verse 7, in talking to husbands, he says, Husbands, you need to dwell with your wives in an understanding way, and you need to show honor to her as the weaker vessel, since you are heirs together of the grace of life. And then Peter kind of punctuates that point by saying, By the way, fellas, if you don't do that then don't bother praying to God because He ain't going to hear you. Your prayers are going to be hindered. And in fact, it is the Apostle Paul who wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 25 that husbands are point blank. They are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Paul says, you sacrifice for your wife. And of course, I'm going to guess that most, if not all of the women here, you are well acquainted with Proverbs, the 31st chapter. It is an amazing chapter that extols the qualities of what we often refer to as the virtuous woman. Here is a woman of character, a woman of strength, a woman of dignity, a woman of godliness, and she is worthy of praise and honor and respect, specifically in her home. But have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed that in the Old and in the New Testaments, the role of women actually looms very, very large in the Bible story. 
For example, when you open up the book of Genesis and you're reading about those patriarchs, we often spend an awful lot of time talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But have you ever noticed that there's also so much said about Sarah and about Rebecca and about Rachel? They are prominent in those stories just as the patriarchs are. And then you read other great women in the Old Testament. You read about Miriam, who was a hymn writer. She was a prophetess. You read about Deborah, who was a judge. She also was a prophetess. And then I love this passage in 1 Kings chapter 2 and in verse 19. In 1 Kings chapter 2 verse 19, this is a wonderful example. In talking about Bathsheba and about her son Solomon, Solomon is the king at this point. He is arguably the most powerful man on the entire planet. And yet the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 2 verse 19, That when his mother walks into the room, the text says that Solomon, the king, he rose up to meet her and he bowed down to her. He made a special place for her to sit at his right hand. What tremendous respect being shown to his mother. Or what about when you read about those great people of faith in Hebrews the 11th chapter? We're well acquainted again with all the men's names that are there. But if you pay attention, there's a lot of women's names in that text. You'll see the names of women like Sarah and Rahab. And although her name is not said specifically, Jochebed, Moses' mother, is referenced as well. These are people, these are women of great faith. Even in the New Testament church, the New Testament church that we, we compose, do you realize in Scripture how it is that we are described? Yeah, we're the body of Christ. We are the the temple, the household of God. But you know as well that we are also described using a feminine term? We are described as being the bride of Christ. You know, Jesus did something that really was unheard of amongst the teachers and the rabbis of His day. Jesus did something in regards to His earthly ministry that no other rabbi, no other teacher would ever do. In Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us in his gospel that as Jesus went around traveling and teaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom, the apostles went with Him, of course. But then the text goes on to say that so did a number of women. And these women weren't just a bunch of groupies. That's not what these women were. These women were a support to Jesus. They were helping to support Him, the Bible says, out of their own means, verse 3. And what that tells me very early on in the story of Jesus is that Jesus always treated women with great respect. Can anybody here even imagine Jesus saying something dirty, using some kind of sexual innuendo when talking to a woman? Can anybody imagine Jesus, you know, catcalling and woo, doing all that kind of stuff as a lady walked by? Can you imagine Jesus touching a woman in an inappropriate kind of way? I can't either, and that's because Jesus always treated women with great respect, whether it was his own mother, or whether it was even some of those women whose society had treated like outcasts like a woman who was sick and would have been considered physically impure. No one would touch her. Jesus would touch her and heal her. 
Or that woman who was sitting by a well who was a Samaritan. Oh, who wants to have anything to do with a Samaritan? Jesus would. Or what about even that woman who was treated so deplorably by those Pharisees and all those people who just thought so much of themselves? That woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus was there to show compassion to that woman when no one else was. Jesus made time for. Jesus showed compassion to. Jesus demonstrated respect toward women. He set the tone. And it is no wonder then that when we read the remainder of the New Testament documents, we find that women play a crucially important role in the New Testament church. Why you just go all throughout the book of Acts. I've just put two, three here on the screen. Beginning right there in the, right the very first page of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says that as those disciples, as they were gathered together there to pray, the apostles and all these guys that we think about as being the really important people, the text also says that there were women there. And they were praying too. Jesus' mother is named specifically in that group. We continue on through the book of Acts. And we read about great women in the church like Dorcas, chapter 9, verse 36. And all her acts of charity and kindness to others. Oh, we read about John Mark's mother, whose name was Mary as well, in chapter 12 and verse 12, who obviously had a reputation for just being so hospitable that when disciples decided, hey, we need to get together and pray, they knew we're going to go to John Mark's mom's house. That woman was known for her hospitableness. And time would fail us to talk about and explore and read about the good works of Lydia and her hospitality. Or Priscilla, how she aided her husband Aquila, especially as they taught Apollos and all the good deeds that they did. How all of these good Christian women, they helped advance the cause of Christ. And then maybe one of my favorite passages in all the Bible about women. The Bible tells us about a legacy of faith in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 5. When Paul writes to Timothy and he says, You know what, Timothy, I, I really appreciate the faith that's in you. But buddy, don't you ever forget where you got it from. It was first in your grandma, and then it was in your mom. Now this is probably just the tip of the iceberg, but I'd like to think that it is more more than sufficient to make this point. And here's what I want us to take from all of this. Wherever the gospel has gone, And wherever the gospel has been received and accepted in the hearts of people, then the treatment of women has been elevated. Isn't that true? Where the pure gospel has gone, and it has come into people's hearts, then women have been elevated. But by that same token, wherever the gospel has been pushed away, wherever the gospel has been eclipsed by the culture, the godless culture, where people basically have no regard for God or for His Word, then the treatment of women has declined. And I think for most of us, we probably know where our country kind of falls on that spectrum. And so let me say, first of all, to the men in this audience, men, how you treat your wife How you treat your daughter, how you treat your sister, physical sister, how you treat your mother, how you treat your female co-workers, how you treat your sisters in Christ, how you treat just the various women that you interact with on a day-to-day basis, how you treat them speaks volumes about how seriously you take the gospel and about how seriously you take your walk with God. 
I've got to tell you tonight that in a lot of ways I feel wholly inadequate to be preaching on this subject. Because this is not my experience as a man. But I was asked if I would preach on this subject. And so I try as best as I possibly can to sympathize, realizing I'll never be able to truly empathize, but to sympathize with women who have been subjected to the disrespect that is so prevalent in our society today. I have no doubts that the women who are sitting in this assembly, young and old, that you're sitting in this assembly this evening, that you have all experienced to at least some degree, whether small or great, you have experienced to some degree verbal or visual or audible or physical inappropriateness by a man. And to whatever degree that maybe has occurred in your life, I want you to know, I want you to know three things. First of all, I want you to know, I am so sorry for that. Secondly, I want you to know that whatever has happened to you by the ugliness in the hearts of men, I want you to know that that says more about the perpetrator than it does about you. That's their fault. That's not your fault. And then thirdly, while you may not ever be able to unhear or unsee or unfeel that wickedness, I want you to please know this, that such things do not in any way diminish your worth and your value as someone who bears the image of God Almighty. Let me say one final word to the men. Men, and I'm talking to myself as much as anybody here, men... If you are tempted to think or to speak or to act inappropriately toward a woman, if you are tempted to objectify or to demean women in kind of a general way, if you are maybe as you are around your wife, or even when you're not around your wife, you find yourself leering at another woman, maybe a beautiful woman passes by you, a scantily clad woman passes by, and you find yourself leering at that woman, could I just ask you, Weren't you made for something better than that? Yes, you were. And aren't you better than that? You ought to be. And I ought to be. I can't do a whole lot, and really you can't do a whole lot, about changing society at large. I can't do anything about all the nastiness that's going on in Hollywood or in Washington, D.C., or wherever this stuff is so prevalent. But you know what I can do? And you know what you can do? I can do something about me. That's where it has to start. I can do something about my attitude. I can do something about my conduct. I can do something about my behavior. And in small ways, I can be that salt of the earth. And I can be the light of the world. And I can affect me. And I can affect my family. I can affect my church family, and I can even to some extent, I can affect the community that is around me. But it's got to start with me. You may be sitting here this evening, and as we've talked about this particular subject, I'll just say to the men once again, men, if I've said something tonight that maybe has hit a, a nerve, and it's maybe caused you to feel, feel a little bit guilty, I want to just say right now as we extend the invitation, I'm not so sure that you need to come down front and talk to me. I'm not so sure that you need to come down front and say anything to your brothers and sisters here. I think probably what needs to happen right now, if you're feeling guilty about some of the things we've talked about, 
Probably what really needs to happen is right there where you're standing or where you're sitting. You just need to talk with the Lord. Maybe I need to talk with the Lord. I need to be doing some repenting and I need to be doing some praying right here on the spot where I stand so that I can be right with God. It may be something else though that's standing between you and the Lord, some other kind of sin. sure would like to help you get rid of that, get that out of your life so you can serve the Lord from a pure and honest heart. If you're not a Christian at all, you need to know that you do bear the image of God and God desires for you to come and live with Him one day for all of eternity. He's made possible a way for that to happen through your obedience to the Gospel, responding to the good news of Jesus Christ. If you'll confess your faith in Jesus as Lord this evening, repent and turn from sin and then be baptized in water, you can have all your past sins washed away and you'll get a new, clean slate. You can begin serving the Lord throughout whatever time the Lord allows you to live on this earth. And we can look forward to that day when we can all be in heaven. There won't be anything in heaven about men and women and about worrying about gender or any kind of this nastiness that's in our world today. Look forward to that day and that time. We'll just be with God throughout the ages of the ages. If that sounds appealing to you and you want that and you need to grab a hold of that, why don't you do that right now? Make your way down front while we stand and while we sing. <laughs>